The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, August 25th, 2017. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Hurricane Harvey. What kind of name is Hurricane Harvey? Sounds like a terrible beverage served at Pat O'Brien's or a bad nickname for the Miramax studio head or or the catchphrase that Paul Harvey's producers use behind the scenes when that man's name was something other than Abraham Lincoln. You know, now you know the rest of the story. And that man's name was Abraham Lincoln. Don't get Paul mad. He always wants the name to be Abraham Lincoln. He'll go Hurricane Harvey on you. But the actual Hurricane Harvey will not be a good day for the people of Texas. I am not making light, or from this point forward, I will not make light. Did you know that the predicted rainfall is up to 30 inches? Could be even more, so I should say up to 35 inches. Literally, the most rain, this is over a seven-day period, the most rain that the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration has ever predicted. They have a map there, the quantitative precipitation forecast. And for the seven-day period, it's color-coded. They don't have a color that correlates to more than 35 inches. Their color codes don't go that high. The scariest seeming part of a hurricane is the winds. Uh, That's quite unusual. Things flying through the air. You know, your home, your car, yourself getting hit by something like a tree. It's not actually the deadliest part, not statistically. The National Weather Service did a study and found that 49% of hurricane deaths come from storm surge, which is going to happen in this one, and 27% of deaths come from rain, which is definitely going to happen to a Noah-esque degree. So many people are looking at this through the Trump lens. How will the president handle this, his first big natural disaster? But before we even find out the answers to that, the people of Texas have agency. I hope they heed the warnings. I will admit that I am a little bit of an evacuation skeptic. If there is a continuum of rational actions to take when an evacuation is advised or at least talked about, I am not at the extreme end, but more towards the skeptical end. And I think it was probably because I was influenced by covering Hurricane Rita 2005 in Houston, where the bungled evacuation effort killed more people than the hurricane itself. So that said, I really do hope the people in Texas are out of there. By the time you hear this, by the time I said this, they got to be out of there already. And helicopters aren't going to be able to get in and rescue them because of the high winds. This is going to be big, bad, and wet for a long time. On the show today, I spiel about the idea that we do live in interesting times. It is a blessing and a curse. Yes, we do. You've noticed that, how interesting things are. Like Charlottesville, the Neo-Confederacy, the Mayweather-McGregor fight, huh? What? A stretch? No. Because up next, I am joined by the estimable Wesley Morris. So hunker down. We are living in a time, okay, that's a tautology, but it's a little like the statement, is that a thing? Everything's a thing, hence the word everything. So this time that we're living in, have you noticed, has to do with race, definitely has to do with masculinity, and everything comes back to uh, this guy in the White House with the funny hair. Who better to diagnose and to dissect what's going on in our culture than Wesley Morris, he writes for the New York Times. His podcast, Still Processing, 
is uh, is a must listen these days. He co-hosts that with Jenna Wortham. Hello, Wesley. Thanks for Hi. coming back. Thanks for having me. So in your latest New York Times uh, column, you wrote about a lot of these strains, but you also wrote about kind of the weirdo event of the summer, which maybe snuck up on people who weren't uh, combat sports fans. Floyd Mayweather is fighting Conor McGregor. It's a boxer against a mixed martial artist. And this thing has transcended sport. In fact, it might not be a sport. They they kind of invented this new <laughs> hybrid. And there's so and it's shot through like everything else these days with race. Is Conor McGregor mostly to blame? It's interesting. I don't know where to put the onus of this problem. I think everybody's to blame, right? So basically what we're talking about is the series of press conferences, there were four, that McGregor and Mayweather took around the world, basically. Yes. Over the summer. Yeah. The five, in July. The five biggest boxing events this summer will be the event and the four press conferences. Yes. 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 Boxing or MMA. Yes. And you watch them and you can see at first that it's just your normal your normal hype event, right? Mm -hmm. Except even even by those standards, this was extraordinarily abnormal. Everything about it was inherently racial, not not inorganically racial, mm -hmm. right? McGregor, was, the white guy, right. Mayweather, the black guy, the black guy with criminal problems, the black guy who is, you know, unapologetic, as is McGregor. McGregor making comments like, I'm black from the waist down. Yes, yes. And then also telling Mayweather to dance right. for him. right. The dancing, the, the dance command happened during the first one, which mm -hmm. was in Los Angeles. And then by Toronto, or no, sorry, by, by Brooklyn, things had sort of begun to take a turn, where either through the prompting of Mayweather Promotions, the, the outfit that is helping get this fight going, or just through some kind of desperation on, on McGregor's part, he really brought in this race thing that other people in the media had begun to tack on to him. Yeah. And not unreasonably, but everything seemed pretty mild to me. It was more the atmosphere of those events that freaked me out because Mayweather was just jeered for being there. He didn't have to say anything or do anything. They clearly, the crowds, they weren't into Mayweather. And I'm not saying that anybody should be. Mm -hmm. You know, his athleticism is one thing. Everything else is something else. But he really is a guy who primarily cares about money, which is to answer your question or to, or to try to get it an answer. Mayweather is at least partially responsible in that he's not doing anything to combat what McGregor is doing with these taunts. Right. He is just kind of accepting it and go moving on and never deviating from his own shtick that mostly involves pointing out how much money they're going to make from this fight. Which is true. Setting much, unbelievable records. Right, how much money he already has. Which is true, but he owes money to the IRS. <laughs> McGregor brings that up yeah. and he's just like, whatever, yeah. you want to make fun of my taxes, I'm just going to get more money to pay. Still got a hundred million and then he never touched this shit. That's in a tax math. You're right. I'm the IRS and I'm going to tax your ass. It just, it all is so nauseating and so clearly fits within this larger history of both boxing and the idea of a traveling show that is racialized through its performance. So how much of 
the animus here? How much of the dynamic is influenced by the fact that Mayweather is a horrible person, a, mm-hmm. a wife beater or a spouse or a woman beater, mm-hmm. um, unapologetic? So if Floyd Mayweather weren't Joe Lewis, weren't, you know, Mr. Credit to his race, but just a reasonable average person, do you think this whole thing changes? Do you think the sports media jumps on it and says McGregor is A, wrong and B, racist? No, because it's so much, it just feels murkier than that yeah. to me. The fact of the matter is this thing is happening and nobody is stopping it. And the crowd seem to be eating up the way in which McGregor is racializing the fight and applying racism to Mayweather. And when you say no one's stopping it, maybe a listener is like, well, how do you stop it? Think about other sports. Norms would be essentially enforced. Right. Apologies right. would be made. When basketball players have criticized referees and made anti-gay slurs, yes. those yes. players were made to apologize and the do videos. The league steps yeah. in. Yeah. Right. yeah, yeah. And even if it's not the league, fine, we're talking about an individual sport. Advisors or the power structure will say, you're hurting your brand. You're hurting You're hurting your image. You just can't say this. And the opposite is going on right. in this with this fight. But this is the brand, right? So this is what this is what I think is going on. This is not this is not a bug, this is a feature. Right. This is exactly yes, this a symptom is, yep. of Trump America. This is we need to be politically cor- incorrect and the definition of the th- we're going to touch the third rail. This is the third rail. The way you get attention now in 2017 yes. is to hit all of these notes. It not only shouldn't surprise us, McGregor If you gave him a forecast and said, this is going to be the reaction, he'd say, oh, that's exactly what I'm going for. Yeah, sure. But I also think Mayweather would say the same thing. Sure. Like, I think that everybody involved in this operation is guilty of seizing on this moment. But when we talked about onus, it's not on Mayweather to stop it. This is why I think that the 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 blame is too diffuse to yeah. to lay at the feet of any one operation. You know, boxing is a sport that that needs an event like this. And they're going to look the other way as long as the money keeps rolling in. And there's just there are too many people who stand to make too much money from the venues and the people around the venues. Do you know how many parties are happening in Vegas starring famous people that you know on Saturday night? Yeah. It's insane. Yeah. There's stuff happening tonight in anticipation of tomorrow night. There is so much money going on around this fight. It's lunacy. Yeah. And without without the and, and nobody without the racism, right. it'd be a little less. Right. How, right. how about right. that? Uh, yes. Yeah. And okay. Another big sports story: Colin Kaepernick. Now, sure. If the thesis of our first discussion with this fight is they're using the racism to make money, I think the racism that's going on around Kaepernick is not about making money, and it's not about winning. It's sort of about digging. Maybe it's about the perception that some of our fans will be pissed off, but it's sort. I think it's more old line, old school Republican white men. Thirty of the thirty-two owners are those. I don't know Republican, but they're definitely white men, kind of digging in and hurting hurting themselves based on, you know, their perception of what people will do or their deep-seated feelings. Perception of what people will do in what regard? Their perception of uh, a fan backlash that I don't think would be there. Oh, it's so weird though, right? I mean, what is the number one thing people say about Kaepernick's situation relative to being unemployed? The number one thing is, well, you know, he's kind of like the 26th best quarterback in the league. Right, Or like, why would you risk having your backup quarterback cause all this trouble for a whole team right that is the reasonable like i'm not a racist but here's the football reason why he's not employed i think he is somewhere between the 20th and 50th best quarterback right right these are all true things Mm -hmm. but 
if you think about the way the NBA handles these sorts of things versus the way the NFL handles these sorts of things, they're very different. And to me, I think it says a lot about the NFL's belief of who goes to these games and watches on TV that Colin Kaepernick is just left to blow in the wind. Yeah. I mean, many people have said this, and I and I happen to believe it's true, but I believe this is true with all kinds of racism. It doesn't really matter in the scheme of how corporations think about this stuff, what black players think is right or wrong about this country. It really only matters what the white players say. And at the moment, there is no white star in the NFL willing to take a stand remotely equivalent to Colin Kaepernick's. Right. One white player has kneeled. Right. And he's married to a black woman and he says, I'm going to have biracial children, so God, I'm invested. God bless him. Right. his kids are going to see and sure. be like, Daddy, where were you? <laughs> yeah. But the problem is we're not talking about the thing that Colin Kaepernick wants us to talk about. Mm-hmm. We're talking about the thing around the problem, right? Right. right. I just feel like we are, we are so afraid of having these conversations about race and racism. I think that there are white people who somewhat understandably don't think of themselves as racist because they don't actively practice racist behavior. But I also think that in order for anything that any black person or any person of color or any oppressed person is asking for to be heated, you kind of have to understand your culpability in the problem. And I don't hear a lot of conversation about that with regard to Colin Kaepernick. I want to get to that in a second. The idea that racism is not a personal uh, flaw, but systemic, is borne out by what's going on when you compare the NBA to the NFL. Whereas in the NBA, uh, in the WNBA, there have been protests exactly like that. Mm -hmm. In the NBA, there have been similar Black Lives Matter, Miami Heat putting up their hoods, LeBron James being really uh, at the forefront of progressive issues. No blowback, except from dumb sports talk radio, but not institutional blowback, not seen as disruptive to the team. Why? Just compare the two systems. Right. I mean, I I have never been comfortable with the way that we think about sports, given who's playing them generally. And especially with the NBA and the NFL, you're talking about ownership and trading and there's a whole you know yeah, that, ownership and that, trading, that right. paradigm is obviously it's evocative of slavery right and, and, and someone might say wait there's both of those things in the nba or baseball but when you have guaranteed contracts it's a lot different yes. the nfl if, if people don't know has there's no such thing as a guaranteed contract you could be cut at any time mm-hmm. so ownership kind of does mean ownership yeah. yeah yeah you're owned yeah this stuff is really complicated and even for people who aren't ready to talk about it, you kind of have to really talk about it. See, I agree and, with you. I, I love talking about it. I don't. I also like disagreeing and not talking about it necessarily in a certain way. And I think there is a strain, and let's leave sports for a second, of some elements in the African-American community telling white people not to talk about it in this way. And we saw that with the Emmett Till painting and the protests in uh, Boston over Dana Schultz. Dana Schultz. Schultz, yeah. 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 Who's a great artist, though she made this Emmett Till painting and there were protests and beyond protests calls to destroy it when it was in the Whitney Biennial. And this is a trend, you know, this to me is the pendulum's swinging too far. Hey, artists, don't make art. Right. The extreme shutting down of certain conversations is not particularly productive either, right? right? Dana Schutz is not a racist. That Emmett Till painting does not work 
to me. I am really eager and 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 ready to talk about what doesn't work about it, particularly in the context of her other work, which I think is very strong. It is representing a very famous, iconic photo mm-hmm. of of a dead Emmett Till that that went around the world. That went around the world, but but was but was a political statement from his mother to this country, right? About looking and she then wanted about confronting, the open right? Yeah. Exactly. The solution to Dana Schutz's painting Emmett Till at all is not that she shouldn't have a career anymore. It should be that we should talk about why specifically this painting doesn't work. I think we should talk about what it means for white artists to represent black suffering. Not that they can't do it, but what does it mean when they do? Yeah. It's a case-by-case thing for me. Like You can't categorically say that white artists can't have a stake in representing an aspect of American history that the whole complaint from black people to white people in the first place is that you don't know enough about what is going on with us. Yes. I actually do believe there is an attempt. White people are really beginning to honestly or try to honestly reckon with their relationship to a legacy of racism in this country that still exists. And I don't think if you start to shut this conversation down and this self-implication down now, yes. you won't get great art in, in five or 10 years, right. I don't think. So here's my question. Sure. Um, you and I agree that we art should be judged on its merits. Right. Certainly with Dana Schutz, uh, that one painting might not have worked. There was one protest at the Whitney where a protester wore a T-shirt and stood beside the painting yes. and so turned it into a different work of art. I mm-hmm. think that's brilliant. But there's another protest that said it should be burned. So I think you are, and I come up to the line where we say... You can't tell art not to be made. But there are a lot of people who disagree with us. There's sure. a lot, this movement. And do you think that the trend is that movement to shut it down? You know, speech is violence. Do you think that trend is going to increase? Should we, we be really worried about that trend? So here's what I think the trend is actually about, first of all. I mean, I'm sort of working this out, right? But I think that, that one of the reasons that you are seeing things happen like the the controversy over for instance the great comet and i don't know if you're aware of this this is the show oh, i'm very aware okay. of it so the lead of the show groban, groban. oh josh groban so yeah. Gro- groban plays the lead of the show ticket sales are good yes then he leaves and they cast as the new lead a guy from hamilton yes what do you, do you know his name? uh okrieti onadonawan nice that's that's yes. bad but it's yes it's bad it's extremely cool. well extremely well acclaimed actor but not famous. And ticket sales were going nowhere. They asked Mandy Patinkin to yeah. join the show because he's famous. He says yes, but he would be a white man replacing a black man. Uh, there's a huge problem. Patinkin withdraws. The the producers of the show say, I don't even know. I, I didn't realize the optics. But the show does close because right. without the star, it can't sustain. And to me, it seems like, what have you accomplished? Now no one's getting paid. Now no right. one's getting work. Right. Well, I think that what a lot of this energy feels to me to be about is it does not seem likely that any protest is going to get any piece of legislation passed in this country to keep people's lives from being further affected by this administration. I think that you have this kind of like liberal energy to change things where it can be changed. 
Wait, so do you think and, if Hillary Clinton were elected, we wouldn't have the great comet protest? I don't know if that's really the question that you ask. I think the question you ask is what it means, given the administration we actually have, that a lot of this energy of revolt is aimed in some ways at the arts mm-hmm. and what it means that the arts is willing to meet the demands of the protest. Seeing Mandy Patinkin in anything in 2017 on Broadway is a big deal. Mm-hmm. I have a problem with the with the artistic equivalency of Mandy Patinkin, Mandy Patinkin's many years of service in the art of, of performance and Oak, Oak Creative's uh, Anatawan's you know, body of work. They're yeah. not comparable. Right. Right. I would love to see Mandy Petit. I don't even like this show, by the way. Oh, I it's haven't not, seen it. Like I'm not, and I guess I'm I not <laughs> dying for this show. Yeah. The object of anger in that protest against the great comet was not just in the recasting. Yes. It was in the wording that the producers used in introducing Mandy Patinkin to the world as replacing Oak, which was that it was, it's really great of this, of this black actor to quote, make room for, Mandy Patinkin. Listen, I don't care about the language, but the language was something for people to seize upon. Yes. I actually think that one of the other problems. Okay, so we can't talk about racism, right? We don't know how to. We also don't know how to handle racist oriented crises, right? Oh, that's so true. I don't know who the Olivia Pope of racism crises are, like PR crises. Yeah. I think that there should be somebody who who's on the front end, like a pre-Olivia Pope, right? Yes. Who a sensitivity reader. Right. Something. But this is one of the problems. And I think that when we're talking about oh, structural that's, racism. I never thought of that. The PR industry is unbelievably white. Right. <laughs> I think that one of the problems with what the way we think about structural racism is that we think about it. We don't think about the structure of racism. We just think about the N-word. Mm-hmm. We just think about like not is about being denied something in this very direct way. But racism in this country now is is entirely indirect. And that is sort of one of the astonishing things about Charlottesville, right? Yes. Like the reason Charlottesville was a big deal was because, oh my God, here's all this direct racism. But something like The Great Comet can happen mostly because there aren't that many black PR people in Broadway or pretty much anywhere else. Yeah. There aren't enough non-white people doing a lot of things in this country that if there were... I think the tenor around the way certain decisions are made would change. I don't want to live in a world where Mandy Patinkin has to step down from a show because the producers don't know how to explain his being there in the first place. That's insane to me. The other problem, there is a there is a corollary problem to this problem, right? And it's related to Kaepernick in a lot of ways. And it's also really related to, to Mayweather. Like we, we are not also talking about seriously and in like like a real constructive critical way black art we are just happy to have black art that exists we don't know whether it's good or bad we're just happy it's here and dealing with blackness in some way like being grateful to have a show like insecure is not the same thing as being able to really talk about whether insecure works or not from episode to episode the way you do game of thrones I think being grateful for this stuff is actually kind of condescending at the same time. And I think that is like something that's coming out of this atmosphere right now. Yeah, I think it was um, Master of None, which I really liked. Right. But I was listening to a podcast where they talked the 
people didn't like it that much, but they came down on the side of, well, we're glad it exists because of the representation aspects. Like, you're not that's doing not it a favor. Right, right, right. <laughs> that's not how it works. Yeah. If you've got a problem with Master or None and you're just glad it exists, but you want it to get better, then you need to talk about, like, what's wrong with it. Yeah. So when Aziz Ansari and Alan Yang hear your podcast, they know what your issues are. I mean, I'm a critic, so obviously I'm in favor of the application of criticism to all things. Yes. And so when that doesn't happen, it kind of drives me crazy because I feel like we should be able to talk about what these things are. There, There's a thing that happens where black people, who are certain black people, who are fans of certain black artists or certain black things... Don't want they want to short circuit any sort of critical dialogue around them because they don't want to hear someone say the wrong thing. It's tough. Like in an absolute sense, I am a hundred percent against the 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 shutting down of conversations. But at the same time, that active attempt to preemptively short circuit dialogue yeah. is entirely because a lot of what's coming from the other side of that dialogue is insensitive well that's not offensive. shutting down a conversation that's saying don't get it wrong like i know criticism it, is subjective but, you know but how you're getting out. it wrong right right, yeah. right. but yeah. that's not obviously that's not how it's being expressed right it's not like hey everybody we can talk about this it's more like this is not for you yeah this like lemonade is not for you so just shut up we don't want to hear what you have to say just just like let us have this and and i'm don't so tired that. of these white people right get, right yeah, yeah. and that is trauma speaking and i totally understand the the place of trauma that comes from the place of exasperation that comes mm-hmm. from but again i want to know how people are able to talk about lemonade in a in a way that doesn't rely on your experience as a black woman or a black man or a you know a person of color in this country to be able to relate to it i mean it is an album that is great irrespective of beyonce's blackness right um, and I think there's a way to talk about it as a great album that both includes race, but also thinks about its musicality, its structure, just how pleasurable it is to listen to. You don't have to remove the history from that, but you also there are ways to talk about Lemonade in a way that that aren't exclusively about that history. Yeah. And on the issue and this is the last thing I want to get to on the issue of ways to talk about race, ways to talk about these works. One, I would say. Twitter has strengths, but Twitter is pretty good at yelling something Mm -hmm. and then getting yelled back at. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Whereas something like a podcast, let's say I say something wrong and then you (laughs) correct me and then we don't even realize we're strenuously disagreeing. But if we were kind of having a disagreement on Twitter, it would be there forever and things might get out of hand. I don't know. It just seems like since we're so Twitter centric, especially critics, Mm -hmm. it's particularly bad in terms of making up for a misstep that had no bad intention behind it. I think podcast and speaking in real life are a little better. I think that's a huge part of, of what is going to make some of this stuff better. It's I, not I agree. It was never going to be Twitter. Yeah. It's only going to be talking. I find, I love to have on my show people I disagree with. And in life, I love to engage in disagreements. And I have found recently that the, when I, whenever I c- can't find too much common ground. It is not because I am white and the person I'm talking to is black or I am straight and the person I'm talking to is gay or somewhere else on the continuum or I am what male and female. 
It's age. Mm. Anyone mm. 35 and up, mm. I almost always can find some <laughs> common ground with. Anyone 32 and down, it's crazy. Oh, 33, 34, that's like that's maybe you could go area, either way. Area, right. You're about, are you 40? Are you yeah, a man of 40? Yeah, yeah. yeah of, course we, of course we understand. How old's Jenna, your co-host? Much younger. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I think that is so determinative how I process it and I'm still processing how I process it <laughs> is that oftentimes a young person will hear a disagreement and where so many other people will say well this is a disagreement disagreement means this is what I have to do argue against it see mm-hmm. where they're coming from to them disagreement means something else it doesn't even mean disagreement it right. means it's assault. a more hostile it's something hostile yeah. yeah yeah I've experienced that I guess I don't really know how old the people I'm talking to <laughs> do you know what I mean? You got to do like, a census. I'm really not. I'd like you to get the data. I'm really not aware, but I definitely find that it's increasingly hard to talk to people in general about anything where you don't automatically agree. Well, it wasn't hard to talk to you, Wesley Morris, mm. culture writer for the New York Times, co-host of the podcast, still processing. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Mike. And now the spiel. It is not just a saying in Chinese, but it is a curse. May you live in interesting times. It's not really a saying in Chinese at all. They looked into it. Nah, it doesn't exist. But it would be nice if it did exist. If it were a real Chinese curse slash saying, very useful. So let's pretend that it's an old Chinese curse. And also we could feel good about the implications of propagating said curse because of its inauthenticity. We're not actually engaged in cultural appropriation. Think of it that way. Anyhow, we do live in interesting times, and I love things that are interesting. I'm really interested in things that are interesting. That's weird, huh, isn't it? In the category of things not to admit out loud these days, I'll admit this. There are several aspects to the Trump presidency that have been really, really interesting. And it's not just me who thinks this. Look at cable ratings. Look at every late night show. Look at the number one story in sports, Colin Kaepernick. Look at the fact, theory of mine, that there hasn't been a hit movie this summer because we're all looking at Donald Trump. It is acceptable. Here's the way that it's acceptable to phrase this. It's acceptable to say, I'm compelled by Trump. I can't look away. Like you can't look away from a car crash or coverage of an air disaster. Or it's acceptable to say that you're always looking at Trump, but you have to look through your fingers. You have to caveat the idea that you find him interesting. You know, I suppose you could all say, you know what I'm doing? I'm, I'm monitoring Trump. I'm holding him to account. I'm staying informed as a citizen so nothing he does sneaks up on me. But let's just admit it. I'll admit it. He's so interesting. He's so crazy and unexpected and expectation shattering that it's just flat out interesting. He has done harm to norms and traditions and institutions and potentially seems likely the environment. He has certainly, I'm not minimizing this, he has certainly done real harm to immigrants who were swept up in raids where they were looking for the bad hombres, but they just took these immigrants here illegally instead. I'm not minimizing that. And his potential to do harm is quite frightening. But in the terms of destruction that he's actually wrought, it's been minimal. He's so flailingly incompetent so far, he's gotten in the way of himself so often that I find it sometimes interesting to the point of amusing. His reaction to Charlottesville was appalling. 
But really, would a trained or normal politician like Mike Pence, who doesn't really disagree with anything that Trump thinks, in fact, if he does have disagreements, it's that Pence is more anti-gay and more anti-abortion. So if a Mike Pence type or Mike Pence himself, literally, were to take the podium and say the things you'd expect a politician to say, would America be better off? I kind of like the fact that he shows us who he is. Yes, it's sad for America that the Oval Office is on fire, but it is something of a saving grace that we can all see through the smoke and identify the arsonist as that guy with the yellow hair and the overlong tie. Yes, he's interesting. Which brings me to the debt ceiling and a possible government shutdown. Congress will have to navigate these two issues when they return after Labor Day, and Donald Trump is making it interesting, and I am kind of gleeful. Let's, let's separate them. Not about the debt ceiling. The reverberations of screwing with the debt ceiling, that will definitely hurt a lot of people. They should not do that. But a government shutdown, which will hurt some people in the short term, some government workers who will be furloughed, people visiting national parks, so we'll have nowhere to go, that sort of thing. But it could be disastrously entertaining. This whole thing might come down to a my way or the highway stance on the Mexican wall. Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer has been pretty clear. It's not a negotiation, no wall. Whereas Trump counters, Believe me, if we have to close down our government, we're building that wall. Now it's notable that he said, if we have to shut down our government, because the original promise was that it would be their government, the Mexicans, who would be paying for the border wall. The president is acting like, if we, you and me and the president and every other taxpayer, so I should probably say just you and me. So if you and me pay for the wall, it's pretty much keeping his promise. It's at least keeping half his promise. I do not look at it this way. If I invite you out to dinner, hey, dinner's on me. And then the check comes and I say, you're paying. Did I really take you to dinner? And probably with dessert, I had two scoops of ice cream. So that's insult to injury. This is not keeping a promise. But think of a government shutdown over a wall that Congress doesn't really want. And with total Republican control of all branches. They have a two-vote margin of error in the Senate, three votes really, since Pence will break a tie. But Trump has engaged in a campaign of alienation against Republican senators. He's taken on Flake McCain, Corker McConnell, and Graham in the last four days. Here's Arizona Senator Jeff Flake last night speaking to KNVX Channel 15 Phoenix. This notion of a 2,000-mile wall has always been just for anybody who spends time on the border, just a bit, you know, out there. The senator, who the president refers to as the flake, calling the president a bit, you know, out there, does not count as a slick burn. So Trump probably thinks he won this round in the arena that counts to him, Twitter. But with an actual vote on the Senate floor, it might be a different story. Anyway, I think I'm excited for a shutdown that the Republican president forces on the Republican-led House and the Republican-led Senate. And while the die seems not quite cast, the Freedom Caucus is yelling, new shooter coming out. That's a craps reference, by the way. Doesn't work? All right. Here's a line from a Reuters story. The party's conservative wing backed the president's call for wall funding with Representative Jim Jordan of Ohio, a founding member of the Freedom Caucus, telling Reuters... Any government shutdown would be caused by Senate Democrats. That is exactly the line of reasoning the president used when health care failed. So he's armed with a set of really compelling talking points that saved so much tangerine-hued face a month ago. What could go wrong? It's almost hard to believe that even a chaos filiac 
like President Trump, could think good could come of orchestrating a government shutdown, could think that this would be in his interest. Although I have thought of one other theory. Perhaps the president believes that when the government gets shut down, the first to be furloughed would be any special prosecutors poking around. But I checked, and they'll still be working. Interesting. And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Dan Schrader, who's betting on Mayweather in the fourth and Karen Handel in the sixth. He's already got half of it won. The gist was also produced by Mary Wilson, who credits McGregor's hop step and points to his pull and pivot technique. But she's really on the lookout for his use of the hokey pokey combined with his push push in the bush. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, is not a celebrity. He just breaks people's faces for money and bounces. Hey, let me tell you this. I am off next week, but we have, dare I say, a cavalcade of guest hosts. Andrea Salenzi, Osita Wanevu, Leon Nafak, Dan Savage, and Robert Smith. I know the guests they have lined up. Basically, I didn't even want to take a week off, but I just wanted to hear these five people host a show like The Gist, and this is the only way to orchestrate that. Please do listen. The Gist absolutely refuses to pay the $99 for the fight. It is a financial and moral abomination. But hey, if you already bought it and you're inviting me over, I'll bring some IPAs. You know, it's kind of like the ivory trade. Some say burn it, but I say it does make for a pretty brooch. Oomperu, deperu, du peru, and thanks for listening.